And so it wasn't like you were morally impure because a woman was on her period. That's not what they're saying. You hadn't produced life. And so you're ritually unclean because bringing forth life is something that God does. And so because of that, you have to wash and prepare in order to enter God's presence because only things like God can enter God's presence. Because I've heard so many people talk about how misogynistic and sexist the Israelite cult is because it excludes women in this way. And it's actually not. It's women's capacity to produce and bring forth life as holy and acknowledging when this doesn't happen that there needs to be preparation in coming to God in that All right, so this week we're going to be expanding on some ideas that we covered last time, um, most notably moral and ritual purity. But before we get into that, um, I want to make explicit how this connects to what we were talking about last week. So I'm going to read the quote we closed with last week from Willard from chapter five. It's on page 160 at the very top of the page if you have the, the oh, same hard yeah. copy that I do. Even on Kindle, it's the same. So, okay. For those there of you that go. download the ebook. So, from the section, The Deeper Beyond from Which Actions Come, Willard says, He knew that we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. To succeed in keeping the law, one must aim at something other and something more. One must, one must aim to become the kind of person from whom the, de the deeds of the law naturally flow. The apple tree naturally and easily produces apples because of its inner nature. This is, not the most uh, this is the most crucial thing to remember if we would understand Jesus' picture of the kingdom heart given in the Sermon on the Mount. This mm. is also in John 6, right? You will bear fruit, talking about the kinds of things we will produce. And Willard is saying that Jesus didn't use that analogy accidentally. That is a purposeful analogy. We bear fruit, not because we aim at the, at the works themselves, but because we become the kinds of people mm. in whom that fruit naturally comes forth. And that is important. Right. So to analyze this situation, and, and Luke, do you have anything you want to add? to that so last episode we we talked about anger and contempt and or we talked about that in chapter five and the layout of this sermon and why jesus says what he says in the order which he says it <clears throat> and in in this past well we only recorded a few days ago in these past few days i've been really watchful of myself and seeing the kinds of things that produce the anger inside of me. And I was hanging out with some good friends of mine, and we were talking about a situation. And one of my friends came through the defense of somebody that I thought it was, let's say, unjustifiable to defend. And that made me angry. But in her in her uh, in her attempt to defend i thought was an honorable thing 
but it still made me angry. And <clears throat> later, uh, we were hanging out. She offered to buy me a drink. So to celebrate the end of my semester, which is great. And this was like 20 minutes after we had had, and it was a little bit of a contentious conversation about 20 minutes afterwards. And she goes, she tells me, Hey, I'm like, I kind of flew off the handle there for a second. Like, I'm sorry. I had that reaction. I understand you're trying to help your friend in this situation. Da, 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 yada, yada, yada. And I was so convicted that I had started to look at her contemptuously when 20 minutes later, she just asked for forgiveness. And I just kept in my, in my head, because I was in public with a group of friends, but so I'm not gonna just sit there and like say it under my breath and be weird, but I just kept praying the Lord's prayer especially forgive us our sins as what forgive us our sins as what as we forgive those who sin against us because i want to be the kind of person that can do that and this is like one of my best friends and it just like i was so shocked that like this comment she made that i thought was totally justifiable like got me so did something to me and I was like I don't like this and I was I was humbled that she asked for forgiveness but you know and it was it was a it was a good and right conversation like I'm not saying it was anything bad but I just watched my own heart on that on that evening and I was like man Luke you you know you think you're easygoing and like you can kind of let it go but you get really, you, certain comments make you angry. Be careful. Because that's what I kept thinking. I was like, I don't want to like, I don't want to have this interaction. And I was about to like, sorry, I'm trying to organize because this happened like three days ago. Um, I was in my own head, like, do I tell her, like, I'm sorry, I'm contemptuous towards you at this moment because of what you said? I don't know if that would have been appropriate, but I was just, I was like, this is like one of my best friends. I'm not about to just be mad at her for something that I think is, that wasn't wrong to say. It's just not what I wanted her to say. I wanted her to be on my side. And so I, that's what to add uh, i'm trying i i want to be the kind of person that does not as willa talks about at the end of that chapter hold on to my bitterness and my anger but can ask for god's forgiveness because i am forgiving those who sin against me and that that command man that's that's something because he's presupposing you're going to forgive those who do wrong to you. And as Jesus ends the sermon on the mount, or that passage we read last week, what good does it do to you if you just love those who love you? 
if you're just nice to those who are nice to you. Don't the Gentiles and the pagans do that? That doesn't mark you out as any different. So that's so, what I have to say. A, a few notes on that real quick. So don't, doesn't, you are not separated from the Gentiles and the pagans. And we hear that and like, especially in some circles, we hear like racism bells going off, right? There's a reason Jesus says that. And we're going to get into it in this discussion of moral right. ritual purity. Right. Um, and so it's not, don't import our modern not, conceptions onto this. Yeah, it's not it's about not due race to skin color. It's, it's not, that's not it at all. And I, I did want to say too, is that we live in a culture that is fueled by righteous anger. Right. What does that do to our cultural contempt? That Willard talks about this. And I'll just leave that there. Think about that because that is important. But we have, we have other things to get further into. And this may be a topic that we have to come back to in the future. So um, Luke, I'm going to go ahead and share. Uh, yes. The, We're the passage some, for today. Read some Bible. And let you, let you work your way through it. Um, starting in verse one. All right. This is the This is, okay, this is Mark. I, I don't yeah. remember this. I was yes. like scanning Sorry. and I was like, this isn't Matthew. Okay, cool. This is Sorry. The, an interaction between Jesus and um, the Pharisees throughout, like relatively deep into Jesus' ministry. Um, and it's a contentious situation. Okay. It says this, seven, Mark 7, starting yeah. in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered him after they came from Jerusalem. And saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands. That is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. Interesting. Time out. Interesting time, time out point. Real quick. Time out real quick. I should have chosen a different translation. When it says can, unholy hands, think unclean, um, because right. this, this translation is conflating holy and clean, and that's actually something we're going to address today. Um, okay. So don't think unholy, think unclean. But it does come from being unwashed. That's important. We'll get back to it later. I'll, I'll go to five. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy or unclean hands? But he said to them, rightly, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commands of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is certainly to be put to death. But you say, if a person says to his father and mother, whatever I have would help you, is korban, that is given to God, we'll get into that in a minute, you no longer allow him to do anything for his father or his mother. 
thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began to say to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which come out of the person are what defile the person. When he later entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him? But it does not go into his, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, talking of food, un, eating food with unwashed hands. Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thereby, he declared all foods clean. Interesting comment. Worth some debate. Um, and he was saying, verse 20, and he was saying, that which comes out of the person is what defiles that person. Do you want me to finish the paragraph? Yeah. For from within, out of the hearts of people come evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, theft, murders, hatred, acts of adultery, lust, deeds of greed. We'll get into that next week. Wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evils, evil things come from within and defile the person. So one of the reasons I picked this passage is because I think it goes really well, especially that last bit that you read with the Sermon on the Mount and everything Jesus is talking about there. But it actually shows where the rubber meets the road with this in some of the tensions that Jesus has in his own life and in his community. Um, we're going to read some from Who Shall Send the Mountain of the Lord and some from the Jewish Gospels by Daniel Boynarin um, on this passage. Um, and I'm really excited for both. Daniel Boynarin's treatment of this passage is excellent. Who Shall Send the Mountain of the Lord isn't directly on this passage at all, um, but it's going to help us color in a lot of the background that is assumed by this passage that we as modern Luke and I in America, individuals don't fully understand. So, um, and that most of the, and Boynarin argues, most of the readers and Mark himself, the writer, would have understood when writing this passage. Um, most scholars think that Mark was relatively ignorant of the Jewish context, and Boynarin argues, using this passage, that Mark is actually very skilled and adept and knowledgeable about Jewish practice and culture himself. Um, so one more quick, I'm, I'm gonna read a bit from Hosea because this kind of helps flesh out some of the later themes that we're mm -hmm. going to, to touch on. Um, and we'll use this as a springboard into um, what follows. So this is Hosea six. I'm gonna start in verse four and read maybe through verse seven. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? Uh, Ephraim, sorry. And what shall I do with you, Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early, meaning it's not substantial, right? Therefore, I have cut them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the word of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that shines. Remember the light that shines, and I'll try to highlight 
that later in our conversation, but the light that shines is important. For I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quote that, quotes that to, um, I believe, some Sadducees later in the gospel. But like Adam, they have violated the covenant, and uh, there they have dealt treacherously with me. So this is a con condemning passage about the way that Judah is overemphasizing ritual purities and lacking in moral purities. And they're using moral purity, just like in Mark 7, right? Jesus is talking about how you, you dishonor your parents by promising what you're supposed to give them to God right. and saying, father and mother, I can't take care of you because what should go to you is going to God instead. Right. So let me flesh that out for just a beat. Yeah. So before my grandmother passed away last year, she lived with my aunt and uncle for about 10 years. And they got a hat when they were looking for a house after they moved out of our house. They specifically looked for one with a nice basement that she could live in. So she basically lived down in the basement. She had a spot to put her bed. She had a little living room area. She had a kitchen and she had a huge, like two big closet areas. One, she put all her sewing stuff in. Um, but the point being that they specifically, they practiced what the Jews were practicing, right? That is uncommon in America in this specific context, but my aunt and uncle did it. And it'll happen in probably more families than I know of, but where the, and it was my aunt's mother. So my mom and, or my dad and, and then his sister who married my uncle. Um, so my aunt and uncle had grandma move in with them and live in the basement, took care of her, especially my aunt for about a decade. This instant, so that's what, that was the, that's what was prescribed here in this case is to, that's a way you honor your father and mother, right? Because you take care of them in their old age. And so, but what the, what the Pharisees were doing was they were saying, but you could, all that resource you have, you could say, oh, it's Korban. It's, give, it's given to God. It's promised to God. So I can't use it for you, grandma, to take care of you. It's like if, they, if my aunt and uncle who needed, who were going to use the basement for the church, for grandma said, oh, no, that's reserved for the church. So grandma, you can't live here, even though it's an empty space even though it's not used in that sense at the moment, which now, funny enough, in my example, it is. They have a missionary couple living in their basement. Um, but that's, just to give a concrete example, that's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying, you are upholding this practice of man of promising what you have to God before it's even used, so therefore you can forego an immediate need that you can meet and are called to meet by the, by the commands of Moses. To honor your father and mother. But you're saying, oh, no, I'm honoring God with it. So my father and mother, they can, they can kick rocks. It doesn't matter. Is that a good? Yeah. No, that works perfectly. And I think what this, 
what this highlights is a certain kind of gospel of sin management, right? right. They can seep in really easily in elevating, not realizing that in dedicating things to God, you're, you actually should be working for, to produce right. a good, stable, and life-giving community Shalom. and taking care of those around you. And that in and of itself is an act honoring of God. That doesn't mean, right, and there's the flip side of this, that the social gospel becomes, uh, the so social justice gospel becomes the gospel, right? Jesus is king, stays there. But it's how these things get acted out in the world that does matter. And this is what Jesus is running into tensions with them about. So you highlighted um, this practice of korban, right? They say it is korban, which um, means offering. So I'm going to um, share a little bit of Hebrew using Blue Letter Bible. Um, this is the word korban. You can see it right there. Um, this is how to pronounce it. This is the transliteration from the Hebrew, which is right here. It means offering or oblation, right? It's just an offering or a sacrifice of right. some kind, right? Um, it comes from this word right here, which I have right here, which is the verb form, karav, or karav, because uh, it's without the, the dogish. Um, sorry, Hebrew stuff. Um, <clears throat> so the, the meaning of this verb is not to offer it is to come near, to approach, to enter into, or to draw near. Mm. So an offering is something that, that allows cause, you, that causes you to draw near. It causes you or allows you, it gives you permission to right. draw near to God's presence. Right. Is offering something to God while neglecting your parents going to cause you to be able to come into God's presence? No. And so this is the tension that Jesus is highlighting. This is, this is really what's going on. Are you going to be able to draw near while neglecting the people? And you've forgotten what the offering was for, right? Mm. You make the offering to honor God and, and all of that, but the offering isn't just to honor God, mm. right? And so this, this idea that we do this ritually prescribed thing while neglecting those around us, it, it's faulty. It falls short. Now, um, I wrote a paper on this passage uh, about a year ago. The Mark 7 passage. Um, the Mark 7 passage. And um, in it, I did a lot of research, a ton of research. Yeah, you sent it to me just to prove your point. You sent yeah. it to me in the you were like, you can skip the first you know, 30 pages. Uh yeah. just read the last five. The the first 30 pages were actually like a research synopsis, and then the last five were the actual paper itself. So I did a ton of research for this, and that was part of the assignment in my class. But anyway, um in in, I'm going to read an excerpt of the paper talking about how ritual purity isn't actually, because we, we Christians, we do this all the time. Well, like, see, moral purity 
we don't use this language because we usually so, don't have okay, this language. So, sorry, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna have you do something here really quickly. Yeah. As you describe this, uh, can you link it to the hand washing so that we keep we can yes. continue with the analogy and then we can help keep the yes what we're describing straight. So, <clears throat> hand yeah, hand washing is a is a good example. And it's um, an example of the passage. Yes. So in in the the Mark seven passage. Jesus describes, um, or there's tension between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples on this um, idea of hand washing. Now, hand washing is not something that's prescribed in the Torah, um, at least in the way that it's described here. It's part of the tradition of the elders that gets built on top of. It's a way of building a fence around the Torah and protecting yourself from breaking it, which right. I think is actually a good thing. Okay. But um, sometimes it manifests itself in unhealthy or unhelpful ways and becomes a bad thing when we make that central, right? Which is right. the tension that Jesus is highlighting here. And so he's saying like ritual purity, what they're aiming for isn't inherently bad. What is bad is when ritual purity comes into conflict with moral purity itself which is the thing that the ritual purity is supposed to help you produce. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. And some of the ways that Leviticus really is, that's what Leviticus is trying to do. We think of all of those weird esoteric laws as um, hard to understand and pointless now, and they're not. Um, I'm not saying we should start back up the sacrificial system, but... We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, so... That's that's the point with this hand washing thing, right? It's it's not unholy like it said in our translation. And I should have caught that. I apologize. It's unclean. You you eat with unclean hands. And you need to go through a ritual washing. That's ritual purity. And that's ritual purity, right? Not moral purity, but ritual purity. So I'm going to read an excerpt from my paper talking about this idea of ritual purity. <clears throat> Joel Marcus, who wrote an extensive commentary on Mark, um, Joel Marcus asserts that the Pharisees' motivation was the magnification of God's holiness through the extension to lay people of purity laws that the Old Testament had been, uh, in the Old Testament, had been applicable only to priests. So one of the things that the Pharisees were trying to do was expand who got to follow the law, not who had to follow the law necessarily, but who got to follow the law and who got to dwell in God's presence, right? They are trying to extend the priesthood to all Jews. They're trying to create a priesthood of all believers, which is something that we as Christians, as Protestants at least, as Protestants especially, are here for and should really be on board with. The, the Pharisees were a very interesting movement, and we mischaracterize them so much. So that's the end of the Joel Marcus quote, but my paper continues. This extension was seen as an empowerment and an elevation of the people. Now laity could participate in what God was doing in the world in a greater way. By keeping ritual purity, they were afforded greater connection to their religious heritage. We see in this passage and in the greater context of the Bible, a distinction between two types of purity. This is a quote, uh, ritual and moral 
Ritual purity is the state of being clean to the point of being able to participate in ritual practice. This kind of purity is defined by three things or defiled sorry. by three things. Before you continue, sorry. Yeah. I just want to no, put good. this in the people's heads. When you say uh, ritual purity, uh, able to participate in ritual practice, think of the cultic practices. Yes. Not yeah. in terms of like witchcraft occult, but the, the cult, the occult yeah. of the temple, the sacrifices, the yes. tabernacle. Yeah. A Being able to be in that practice. space. Yeah, cultic, cultic practice. practice is, I mean, religious scholars would call communion a cultic practice, right? right? It's not that we're in a cult, and it's not that we are um, doing some kind of weird thing. It's just a of way of designating, yeah, it's a way of designating a certain kind of practice within the language of scholarship. Sacred, um, sacred practice. Yeah, a sacred practice in the mind of its adherents. And so the, when Ritual purity allows you to participate in cultic practice, and there are specific kinds of purity for specific kinds of practices. Um, that's important. <clears throat> this kind of purity is defiled by three things. Mm -hmm. Lepra, which is leprosy, right? And what leprosy in the um, back then was, in, in those days, was... Um, your skin would turn white. It was a skin disease that would make your skin turn white like you were dead. Um, and so it was associated with being a living dead person. Right. And so there's this thing, a weird thing about life and death, right? Associated and as with you leprosy. go through, that's what all these are about. Yes. Yeah. And I was going to highlight that. So the next thing is genital discharge of blood or semen. What is that? the bringing or the lack of bringing forth life. That is what that is. And the last thing is corpses. So a dead touching something that was dead made you ritually impure. And there are a lot of ways that the biblical language kind of gets confusing because some things are called pure in other kinds of ways, especially when this kind of purity gets mapped onto ritual purity, right? Because the prophets especially use this language of purity in a way to uh, magnify some of the, um, the moral failings of the people. And so it, that's one of the ways in which we conflate it all the time. And they were using it as a very good and salient example for their people, but we, because we don't understand the grounding conflate the two real, real easily. And so it wasn't like you were morally impure because a woman was on her period. That's not what they're saying. It was that, it's that you, you hadn't were, produced life. You hadn't produced life. And so you're ritually unclean because bringing forth life is something that God does. And so because of that, you have to wash and prepare in order to enter God's presence. Because only things like God can enter God's presence. Living Therefore, things. so Alive, it's not holy things. Yes. And so I've heard so many people talk about how misogynistic and sexist the Israelite cult is because it excludes women in this way. And it's actually not. It's it's seeing women's capacity to produce and bring forth life as holy 
and acknowledging when this doesn't happen that there needs to be preparation in coming to God in that instance, right? And same thing with, with men. There are lots, lots of passages that talk about that kind of thing with um, things like nocturnal emissions in, in the Levitical, it's either Levitical codes or um, the book of Numbers. So, <laughs> uh, um, yes, I've never heard it described that way, but what a phrase. That's, well, that's, that, that's how that's the, um, I think that's how it's usually translated, actually. In, Interesting. In those verses, um, which is why I use that phrase. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very sterile way of referring to it. But anyway, here I am talking about this on the internet. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, those are the three things that ritually defile. They're all associated with life and death, which is one of these typological tensions that we've highlighted in the past, right? Life, death, order, chaos, um, heaven, earth, these kinds of things, right? It's part of this typological framework. And when read within that vein, we, we see how it operates. So there's a difference in moral purity, which is concerned with pollution of oneself through sexual misconduct. Uh, let me let me give one more sorry, give one more yeah, example no, of this ritual purity. Yeah. When God gives the law to all the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. One of the things he charges them and I've read some of this in Exodus recently, so it's in my in my head. Um, one of the things he charges them with is don't have sex for 3 days why well because of the purity laws that's why so there's so there's another example of this like in the languages used like cleanse yourselves make sure you're pure don't don't you know everyone stay abstinent for a minute like you know well and and this gets conflated later in theology and in Christian imagination with sex as something that's inherently dirty. Right. And it's not, it's not that at all. It's actually that sex is something that's holy and the creation of life makes you like God, right? Be fruitful and multiply was a command. And it was, is, is one of the ways in which we image God. And so it needs to be respected that's the thing. And it needs to be done in its proper place in its proper time. And approaching God has to be done in a proper place and a proper time and in a proper way, right? That's one of the reasons why offerings and sacrifices have to be made, right? You have to have, as we've talked about previously, that offering, place your um, hand on the head of the goat and it goes out into the wilderness carrying your sins away and then place your hands on the head of the goat, identifying with both of the goats, right? You identify with the goat that carries your sins away, and you identify with the goat that dies and is ushered into God's presence as the korban through the fire and through death. You go through death into God's presence. That's that's this typology. That's this movement that we've tracked in the past, right? So that's ritual purity. Moral purity, something a little different. Moral purity focuses on one's moral behavior, while ritual purity focuses on one's state of ritual cleanliness. 
So in this passage, Jesus emphasizes, oh wait, hold on, I missed my list, sorry. So moral purity is concerned with moral pollution, not ritual pollution, right? So moral pollution comes from sexual misconduct, idols, so you stay away from idols. That's why eating meat sacrificed to idols is such a big deal to Paul, right? And his communities is, can we or can we not do this thing? And that's a whole other topic we don't have time for. Theft, right? So another moral wrong, fraud, some way of cheating someone out of something, deception, and other forms of injustice. Moral purity is focused on one's moral behavior, while ritual purity is focused on one's state of ritual cleanliness. I already read that. In this passage, Jesus emphasizes the importance of moral purity without disregarding the importance of ritual purity. That's important. He doesn't say that you're offering, like offering things to God isn't good. He doesn't say, go do all of these things. That's fine. Don't uphold the law. What he's saying is the emphasis needs to be in the right place. Here he is making moral purity the paramount concern. So any closing thoughts on that? Um, next time we'll get into who shall ascend the mountain and the Jewish gospels, but. Um, pull, up, pull up our passage from last week, Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Yeah. I want to show you and to end this section here, I want to I want to give an example from last week that shows Jesus doing the same thing. Um, okay. Any specific verse? Um, scroll down. Uh, no, 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 sorry. Um, up. Matthew 5, starting 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. I'll read that again. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. <laughs>